Happy New Year! Happy New Year! What up, Chicago? Welcome to another great Sunday morning with myself, Candice Castillo. Um, Hilaria will be joining me in a mo in a minute. Um, Happy New Year, Dylan. Happy New Year, Paul. Happy New Year, you too, Candice. So y'all were so I heard you were out New Year's Eve swinging from chandeliers. Oh, I don't know about all that. You know, <laughs> uh, I had to make it into to the radio station. I know that much, so that that can be confirmed. The other stuff we gonna leave that up to uh, legend. You know, we gonna leave that up to the the man, the myth, the legend. <laughs> The Dylan. That's right. That's right. I'm going to give myself some hand claps. I hope everybody had a wonderful holiday season. Dylan, I definitely had a wonderful holiday season. My family, for their gifts on Christmas, I made them play all those games you see on TikTok. Yes, I actually put a bunch of dollar bills on a small paper and blindfolded my mother and father and aunts who are all over the age of 60 and made them try to pick up money with a spatula. It satisfied my soul. <laughs> but it was fun. Even even the little ones were into it. It was fun. I got to laugh a lot, and New Year's Eve, I spent in the house with my kid watching movies, laughing even more. So this holiday season had a lot of laughter, but it also had a lot, a whole lot of news, both national and local and even worldwide news, just everything. The news cycle, you know, sometimes going into the holiday season... It seems like the news cycle slows down a little bit and everybody takes a beat, like everybody takes a breath. But this year, from the debt ceiling fight to make sure the government was funded in the Senate, like that went to the last minute to what we just got done with yesterday. So usually by January 3rd, we have the new Congress sworn in ready to go, new speaker elected or the same speaker elected, ready to go. This year, it didn't happen like that. This year, the Republicans are in majority and, you know, great for them, slim majority, but great for them. And not the first ballot, not the second ballot, not the third, not the 10th, not the 12th, but the 15th ballot. Kevin McCarthy finally clinched the speakership. Fifteen. I don't know. I don't think the average person could go through being told no 15, 14 times and just to hold out. And he said he will hold out as long as it took, which I don't know. Well, first of all, Kevin McCarthy being in charge of the Congress is not a good thing for the country. Full stop, period. It's, it's not a good thing for the country. But what kind of ego do you have to have or a lack of pride do you have to have to say, yeah, they're going to get this right and I can keep giving away the candy store? So shout out to Ashley Munson on uh, TikTok and Instagram who broke this down for a lot of people that didn't understand it. But let me further break it down. So he traded away so many things 
just to get elected speaker. So let's say it only takes one congressman, one Republican congressman to say, I have a vote of no confidence. And basically they can put him in a vote for saying they don't want him a speaker anymore. That is insane. So the first fight that we have, debt ceiling is one. Um, the war in Ukraine is another. But basic things, even funding things like, I don't know, uh, public broadcasts, which is a thing that the Republicans don't like, or even some of the sci- the departments that deal in the sciences, which is another thing that Republicans don't like. And if you don't believe me, please talk to any grad student in the uh, sciences at University of Chicago. They will tell you how their funding was definitely cut for major things, cure for sickle cell, cure for cancer, things that they are working on every day, how that funding was cut when Trump got in office. So they can, oh, we don't like it. We're calling you in as speaker. We don't think you should be speaker of the House anymore. That's dangerous. That's that's just dangerous. So how will they ever get anything done? Literally, literally, Kevin McCarthy broke the record of how many times somebody goes through a vote. A hundred years ago, it was nine it was nine and it that those nine votes took two months because it was a hundred years ago. Now he has broken the record and it's fifteen. So this Congress is going to be a very interesting one, but the one thing that I think I love the most from the pictures I saw the most, the thing that warms my heart is the squad has a new member. And that member is the Latina, the rooted and ready Congresswoman Delia Ramirez, who now is a new member of the squad and who will be bringing people to task. Um, I saw that picture early, early, early in the morning yesterday, and it definitely warmed my heart that not not only one of our own is willing to stand with other people and speak truth to power, but really one of our own from the movement in Chicago got got here and got uh, and will take those tenants from Chicago to D.C. And I think that's going to be excellent because she's not just taking herself and her husband and her dogs, which they're definitely going. But she's also taking her people. She's also taking her district with her. And she's also taking the voices of the people that help guide her. And she's taking her mama. And let me tell you something. Her mother is a force to be reckoned with. So I can tell this story. Um... I ran Delia's first election. I was her campaign manager on her very first election for state rep. And the day after election, I got a phone call saying, you got to talk to my mom. I'm like, why? Because everybody that she doesn't think voted for me in our precinct, she's going to knock on their doors. Now, that's a mama right there. That's a mom right there. So if you're taking that type of woman with you to D.C., you're going to be fine. You're going to be absolutely okay. So we'll get into the other stuff in a minute. Um, 
other things happen in Chicago. Nobody is off the ballot for the mayor's race. So it's going to be a lot of people in this mayor's race. And the first forums that really have all the candidates there happened last night with our disability advocates. Shout out to Access Living. Um, and it went well. I'm not going to go too far into it, but it went well. But we also have all these aldermanic seats up and just a warm, heartfelt thank you to Alderman Roberto Maldonado um, on his retirement. Um, it's interesting, right? He did wait until the last minute to retire, but he has put work in in that community to make the Humble Park community what it is. So shout out to him. And shout out to our sponsors. So our sponsors, SEIU Healthcare, um, Chicago Teachers Union Foundation, who is doing excellent, excellent work. The Chicago Federation of Labor, Cook County Teachers uh, Union 1600, and of course, friends of Brandon Johnson, if he still has friends. I don't. I don't get it. I really don't get it. But today, so we'll be talking about a variety of things today, including talking to the president of SEIU Healthcare, Greg Kelly. We like to call him president two times around here. But the first thing we'll talk to Greg about is him jogging and Brandon's obsession with joggers instead of bike riders like himself. You know, we got to give the former host a hard time. But we also be talking about going into this MLK weekend and the legacy of MLK, but also the legacy of movements in Chicago. Um, Look, you all, winter is here, right? It's cold outside, but we are warming up. It is election season. So let's take this time, love on each other, but let's get into these issues. Let's get into these issues. Let's get into this snow removal. Let's get into these potholes. Let's get into these parking tickets. But also, let's let's get into the root cause of violence, which many, 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 many of us are not talking about, right? So if we're going to pick a new mayor of this city, we got to talk about what is at the base of what's going on in this city. We face a record number of murders as we entered into the new year. So how do we do this? So how do we do this? Um, so we'll love for you to call in at some point today, 773-763-9278. And we'll be right back. Good morning. Good morning. So we're back. So um, on Christmas Eve in Woodlawn, things got really crazy. So the local alderman who has been on this show, Alderwoman Jeanette Taylor of the 20th Ward, found out that 
a school in her ward um, that was one of the schools closed by Rahm Emanuel in 2012 was going to be open as a shelter to um migrants that were sent here by Governor Greg Abbott in Texas. And it kind of sparked more than a firestorm. So on with me now is our lovely co-host, Hilario. What's up, Hilario? What up, Candy? (laughs) So Hilario, instead of dealing with the issues in Chicago, went on a trip around the world for the holidays. Hey, I just want to know. Just for for the city of Chicago. Did you miss me? I mean, I mean, I I couldn't annoy you, but I, I felt like I traveled with you and your lovely wife with all the pictures on Instagram. So I felt like I traveled with you. Listen, we had a great time. Um, it was our honeymoon, as you all know. We were recently married in October. Um, so it was probably one of the best trips I've taken. Although... I think we ate some really bad olives like the last night. Oh. So that wasn't that wasn't fun. But you yeah. know. Yeah. We're here. So Hilario, let's let's talk about this. So the mayor had a plan to move migrant workers, still migrants, not migrant workers, I'm sorry, that came up from Texas into a predominantly black community into a vacant school that was vacated um, in 2012 um, when Rom closed the schools. The community literally found out less than two weeks before the migrants were moving in, and it kind of set off a racially charged firestorm. So what do you think about all of this? Yeah, there's two different conversations to be had, right? And I think we it's very important to separate them because if we don't, then this this gives our leadership uh, an off, right? And, uh, 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 an ability to, to get out of this situation, Right, because this is the perfect setting. This is this is what leadership wants. When I say leadership, I mean this mayor administration, um, because it it avoids them being able to take responsibility here. So you need to separate this into the historical context and complexities of black and brown tension, right? And and I think that's that's an important conversation, and there are realities there that we we can get into, and. You need to talk about a failed and disorganized leadership, right? Because that's exactly what happened here. When the mayoral administration doesn't do their due diligence in reaching out to communities with enough time, right, with enough effort, then you get this sort of backlash. You get this kind of uh, rebuttal because, quite frankly, it makes sense when something is thrown into anyone's home, anyone's backyard, neighborhood, um, at the drop of a dime this way, uh, it, it, it causes questions and, and it causes tensions. And that's exactly what we saw here, right? And and so I think it's really important to separate into into two different buckets. So, I mean, I think this goes back even a little more than that, right? I mean, when these schools were closed in 2012, Communities had no say-so in these schools being closed. And it doesn't seem like, at least in this case, this particular community is having a say-so on what it's being opened 
ass. So for me, of course, I probably noticed the issue a little better than most because I did. I was Alderman Taylor's chief of staff for two years. Like we got inquiries on the monthly basis and those who are extra serious, like it was jumping through hoops to even get a walkthrough of the site. So from a movie theater to apartments to um, an after-school program, to a training facility, where all some of the rather serious inquiries we got about that location. And the neighborhood definitely needs an after-school program for kids, uh, just a place for kids to go. Yes, they have Harris Park, but Harris Park doesn't have a football field. They The neighborhood definitely needs a job training center. They really don't have that. The YWCA is there that does great work. So does the YMCA. But they're not large enough for that type of training center. There is no movie theater in the area. And apartments, sure. But all of those serious inquiries that took, like, a lot of red tape to jump through. And Alderman Taylor ran on and has stayed on the community has to come with me. I'm not making these decisions without my community. So I think it goes back to the dignity of communities with these vacant schools, because for the most part, these schools are still vacant. Yeah. And I think you're right. This is a tired play from the same old playbook that we've seen um, that is based on white supremacy, right? It, it's when leadership and government um, make decisions for communities of color, in this case, black brown communities, um, without their say-so. Closing schools back in 2012, right, that, that didn't include us. That didn't include teachers. That didn't include educators, community members, mothers, parents, um, to now trying to uh, utilize schools to... Um, to house to house migrants or utilize closed schools, should I say, to, to house migrants. Again, those decisions didn't include the community members um, that live there, the, the neighbors that live there, right? And and that's the same old thing that we see from tired government. Um, and, and I think that's a, a distinction to make from also uh, a different conversation um, that we can also have about uh, the history of black, brown tensions and, and so forth and so on. Um, so I think it's really important that we focus on the failed leadership that happened here in this situation. Um, this was something that, that could have been avoided. Um, and matter of fact, it, it could have been uh, revolutionary of how it was handled if community was involved. Exactly. It could have gotten better solutions. Exactly. And I mean... How questions were answered by community. Um, the the mayor's office did not answer their questions. Like there were real questions on how many people would it be, how long would people be there. There were real, actual questions that the mayor's office did not want to answer, and kept shaded. And that's also not fair. That's not fair for the migrants. That's not fair for the community writ large. Yes, there were definitely some nasty racist things said. And that's something that as a Chicago community, we got to work on on a long time. But on the short term, where's the conversation? 
Where is the conversation? So I believe in making sure and talking to everybody. I mean, to your point, right? Like this didn't happen in a, in a wealthy, predominantly white neighborhood, right? Because you, you would have seen those conversations. We, we would have heard them. They would have been had. This happened in black and brown neighborhoods. Yet again, right? Our communities uh, are forced into these decisions that we had no say, no say so, right? So um, Alderman Taylor was put in a, in a tough place and she continues to stand by her values that she stood on and that she ran on and continues to run on, which is the community's coming with me. We're making these decisions together, right? I'm standing behind community, behind the neighbors that I, that I represent in, um, in city council. Right. Um, and that's something we're not talking about. Like the fact that these neighborhoods are black and brown, that's why we're seeing this. That's why we're, we're this made the news. This wouldn't happen if, if it was in Lincoln Park. Can you imagine? And it's funny because those neighborhoods in Lincoln Park and the aldermen are admitting it is they were actually asked, well, we're thinking of housing migrants. Where would you where would you like them to go instead of being told people are coming here? Thank you so much, Hilario, for joining me this morning. I know you are trying to get over that jet lag to get back out here in these city of Chicago streets. So thank you so much for joining me this morning. You know, anytime. All right. Thanks, Hilario. So now we need to move on to one of my favorite people in the world. The man, the myth, the legend. I like to call him president two times. The president of the state council of SEIU, um, Illinois State Council, SEIU, and the president of SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, Missouri, and Kansas, Mr. Greg Kelly. How are you this morning? I am doing good. How are you doing, Candace? I am fine this morning. I was up very early at a friend of ours' house, and I really want to start this conversation off with really heavy. Um, I hate to do this to you. There is somebody who has been on this show before who randomly talks about joggers breathing too hard, and being a nuisance in Chicago. Would you, as an avid jogger, like to refute any of that? (laughs) I I would not. (laughs) (laughs) I would not. Joggers or runners, there's there's a certain thing about the way in which we breathe that uh, gets us through. So, as somebody who strives to be a jogger one day, I'm still a walk jogger. Um, if you will ever see Greg Kelly on the lakefront, he, like, makes all us people that's trying to get up there look bad. He does, like, six-minute miles and stuff. It's it's horrible. Like, I, you know, puts my little 12-minute mile to shame. I, like, I feel bad. It's dope. Yeah, there are a whole lot of days where I'm doing walk runs too. <laughs> so, the key is just to keep keep moving and be consistent. It ain't every day I'm running fast. Trust all that. So, Greg, as an athlete, as an athlete, what happened on a football field this week? Oh, yeah. Um, 
was terrifying. And I just got to say, that was the day my kid went to his first uh, practice for all-season football team. And that to happen on Monday night, um, well, Tuesday night. Was that Monday? That was Monday. Yeah, Monday night. Yeah. So, Greg, as an athlete, because you are an athlete, like you really are an avid jogger. You take care of yourself in a really great way. How did that make you feel that something that really crazy could happen like that? And as a dad, like how did that make you feel? Yeah. You know, so there's so many ways that conversation could happen. So foot, American football um, is, I have been saying for many years that it's probably not going to last in its current form uh, beyond the next you know, the n- number of years. It's an incredibly violent sport. Um, I played football for about three games as a freshman in high school, and then I got smart and joined the cross-country team. <laughs> uh, but honestly, truthfully, it, it's an amazing sport. It's my favorite sport, but the brutality of the game, the violence involved with the game, um, is something that, we, as a society, we really got to grapple with um, because it, it's unsustainable. You know, back when I was uh, in high school, you know, I considered myself a little fast, um, a little taller than most, but the size and speed of the athletes who play football today, uh, it's unbelievable. You know, guys 6'5", running 40-yard uh, dash in four, you know, four seconds, 4.3 seconds, et cetera. So the guys are faster, they're stronger, and they're running into each other, and they're bigger. Uh, so they lead to these types of really dangerous situations. Uh, it's unclear what the cause was uh, for Monday's athlete, but we know the football as it currently exists just is unsustainable for the human body, the human brain. And we're seeing the, the impact a lot of that, you know, with CT, et cetera. So, you know, I love football. Uh, the brutality of it, though, uh, makes me cringe and, and I have real sort of moral struggles with it. I mean, as a mom, it was it was hard to watch. It was hard to watch. Um and it was hard to watch for the players, not just the player that got hit, DeMar, not just for him, but for his teammates, the people on the other team, because they know one wrong hit, one wrong pass, the same thing could happen to them. Yeah, what struck, what struck me the most about that was, you know, obviously him standing up and collapsing, but the fact that the players instantly knew that there was something where well, players get, you know, fall out, get hurt and have neck injuries, like crazy stuff happens on the football field all the time. But there was something different about this one that all of the players on the field sort of instantly knew uh, was different. Uh, and that was scary as well. They knew something was wrong with DeMar. And, I, and, you know, prayers for his family, you know, it's a blessing that he was able to make it, but also was the fact that he had uh, medical attention at the ready um, that was able to immediately jump in and, and get on top of it right away. But truly was a scary thing to see. And, and uh, we've got some real moral dilemma with the game of football that we've got to confront now. So, 
the medical team being at the ready was extraordinary to me. One, something I learned watching on Monday night was there's a level one trauma hospital near every stadium, every football stadium. And the trauma team basically, for each team, basically works as hard and practice as hard as the players. But getting into talking about our members, full disclosure, I like to call Greg my big boss because he's over. I mean, no, I'm a couple of steps under. So Greg is actually my boss. But getting into our members, right, how does something like this affect the inner workings of the hospital and the hospital workers we represent, like the transport, like the dietitians, like the clericals, like the CNAs. How does how does this type of trauma affect the inner workings of what goes on in a hospital? Well, I think your first point was really a, an important one. You know, healthcare workers in general, they don't just show up um, they train over and over. There's all kind of protocols um, that healthcare workers have to um, abide by uh, in an emergency or even just in a ro- routine care of a, of a patient or a resident or a consumer um, that we don't always see. Uh, there's a level of expertise um, that uh, is required to be successful at the work that they do, and it requires like folks focus on doctors, and of course, doctors are important. Physicians, surgeons, ER docs, etc., are important. But we know uh, that the delivery of healthcare requires a whole team of folks, and like you mentioned, whether you're a, a tech or a, a transporter or you know a nursing assistant or whatever your job is, you have a role in that team. Uh, It isn't just doctors. And so it's important uh, to remember that all those folks, they're training all the time, they're practicing, uh, and they're preparing uh, for instances or incidents like the one that happened on Monday. But these things happen every single day uh, for them. And uh, they they truly are heroes, uh, whether we as a society recognize them properly or not. So, It was interesting for me because through the pandemic, we kept hearing about our nurses and our doctors, our nurses and our doctors, our nurses and our doctors. But we didn't hear about all of those other people who who work lower wage jobs in those hospitals and in nursing homes and in healthcare facilities that actually makes the place work because if you don't have a CNA to come in there if you don't have dietary if you don't have transport the hospital can't work can we talk about how um, SEIU Healthcare in general had to fight for general PPE for these workers. Yeah, I, you know, I think our number one job, and I've said this uh, to folk, it is as a union, is to lift up the voices and tell the stories of those workers. Um, even before COVID, uh, you know, there were workers, and we know in part they are treated the way they are because of who they are. Uh, people of color, immigrants, um, you know, black folks and women tend to get undervalued in our society. And the pandemic did nothing but exacerbate that. Uh, but our job really is to lift up their voices and make people see 
and hear uh, from them. And so as this pandemic spread, uh, even as many of us were afraid of our own health, our members came together and, and said, we're not going to take the disrespect. We're not going to be uh, accepting of all of the stuff that was happening. We have members who were told, oh, just wear trash bags um, instead of uh, giving them proper PPE. Uh, they weren't given masks. Um, you know, they weren't paid uh, when they got sick. Um, they were um, not even told when their coworkers were getting sick or dying. Uh, and so it was a really, you know, 2020 uh, was a really uh, challenging moment uh, for healthcare workers and for our members in particular, because of the ways in which uh, hospitals and nursing homes and et cetera uh, were treating them. And so, you know, we said, we drew a line in the sand along with our members uh, and said that we're not going to take it anymore. We were on the verge of striking uh, in a whole bunch of places, and we actually did strike. Uh, hundreds of workers in nursing homes actually did go on strike um, just to be heard and seen. Uh, because for so many years they weren't. Um, but that struggle continues, I've got to say, unfortunately. Uh, we've made some progress. We've seen some wage increases. We've gotten the type of equipment uh, that's been needed. Uh, but there's so much more to be done, whether it's around staffing, whether it's around paying people decent wages. Uh, society, unfortunately, uh, tends to forget uh, when the crisis appears to be over. But I'm here to tell you, our members are still working uh, in crisis mode, um, and we're continuing to stand up and fight together right along with them. So, Brenda, we got to take a short break real quick, and then when we come back, we want to get into that wage thing a little bit, because you made some news back in November, so let's get into that for a little bit, okay? Sure, sounds good. All right. Thank you. We're back and we're talking to President two times, President Greg Kelly of SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, Missouri, and Kansas. So, Greg, um, in November, uh, SEIU made a little bit of news because in the questionnaire, we put a question about um, would you support an increase at some point to $25 an hour of the minimum wage? And it made a little bit of news. Um, but, but we just got done talking about what some of our workers do. So let's talk about it. Like, are you saying the minimum wage should go up to $25 an hour tomorrow? I I wish it would. Uh, (laughs) but one thing's for certain, if we don't push, uh, it'll never get there. One of the things that, you know, struck me about that conversation was that people were shocked that we asked for something that didn't yet exist. Uh, and that, in fact, is what we're supposed to do as a union. We are supposed to imagine what's possible and fight for it. Um, things don't happen because they naturally happen. Uh, you know, we got to 15 today because a bunch of workers decided 10 years ago now, over 10 years ago now, that it was important to lift up uh, the wages of working people. And without that 
uh, demand back then, we wouldn't be at 15 today. And so to me, uh, we need to push the minimum wage well beyond 15. Uh, workers who perform work in this economy deserve a living wage, deserve a livable wage. Uh, and 15, while it's progress, uh, doesn't quite get us there. And so, you know, when we came up with that questionnaire, you know, we said we wanted to ask folk who wanted our support, right? So folks who want our support, that do you see the possibility and do you support the possibility of workers getting to $25 an hour? It didn't say tomorrow. It didn't say in two years. Uh, it's a pretty basic question. Uh, and, you know, we think it's important to demand something uh, because as I think it was Frederick Douglass said, you know, power concedes nothing uh, without a demand. And so our members deserve to make more. Uh, workers in our country, in our city, deserve to make more. And so if you want to be someone who fights for them, who claims to fight for them and wants to represent them, uh, you should be on record uh, for supporting what they need and supporting their dreams and aspirations for the future. And so that was the idea behind the question. Uh, And of course, we were all, certainly I was really surprised uh, to an extent uh, that it caught uh, so much attention. I was surprised, but I'm not really surprised because I remember the back backlash over 15. And I think people forget that if inflation kept up with the minimum wage, at least in 2020, it would have been twenty three dollars an hour. And right now, inflation isn't keeping up with the minimum wage, even at 15. And I think what we're saying is 15 is the floor. 25 will be the floor. It's not the ceiling. Exactly. And And I would also say one of the things that's important to remember for folks that the minimum wage is, as you said, the floor. It is the minimum. It is not uh, the ceiling. And when you lift up the floor, you lift up the ceiling, right? So uh, when the minimum wage is 15 or the minimum wage is 20, that means all workers benefit from that. That means that minimum wage work has a floor, but it means that everyone else that's above that minimum wage uh, will have to also see their wages go up as well. So for us, it means that everyone benefits when the minimum wage uh, is lifted. So, I mean, we talk about, you know, all boats rising, right? But I think we forget that when we are talking about a $25 minimum wage, a $25 hour minimum wage, or when we're talking about minimum wage work in general, unfortunately, the people who make that money are the people that take care of our children and our elders. Yep. 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 They take care of the most vulnerable people in our society. And we also know a little bit more about those workers. Again, they tend to be women. Uh, they tend to be black. Uh, it's particularly in Chicago, uh, they pretend, uh, tend to be immigrant uh, or Latina. Um, and so, you know, we know who they are. And so it's important that, you know, our society recognizes the gender dynamics uh, that come into play with uh, minimum wage and low wage work or so-called 
low-wage work. I mean, it's funny. We just got done talking about our new congresswoman, Delia Ramirez, and we started talking about her mom, who is a story and a hero in herself, but her mom is a home care worker. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, so that tells about the work that we put into it. And I'm I'm going to switch gears for a minute, but labor, especially black people in labor, has been on the forefront of how we change society. So, Greg, my least favorite holiday is coming up. And that is Martin Luther King Day. Yeah. It is my least favorite, not because of what it represents. It's my least favorite because I get to watch corporations, um, Republicans, conservative media take one speech and quotes and use them completely out of context. What a lot of people don't know about you is honestly you are a reader, you are an avid reader, you are a student of history. I'm telling you, you spend two hours with Greg Kelly, you will go buy books. I now have that problem. But it's it's an addiction. But I'm going to give you an opportunity, not only as a black man, but a black man in labor to talk about the legacy of King that you wish people would take with them or at least teach to their children a week before we go into this holiday so we won't be revisiting the I Have a Dream speech? <laughs> well, one of the first things, you know, as you get older, uh, Dr. King, the, the importance and the significance of Dr. King, his life uh, and his uh, message sort of deepens and you start to get various understand, you know, different types of understanding that I certainly didn't get when I was younger. Uh, and as I've gotten older, the most striking thing to me is how young Dr. King was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and like when he died, he was 30 in his thirties, uh, when he was doing some of his most consequential work, he was in his twenties. Uh, and so for me, he's, he's sort of, uh, he's an iconic figure, uh, but he's, on so many levels represents so many different things. But again, as I've gotten older, I'm struck by how young he was. I'm struck by how committed he was, even at a young age, uh, to his principles and, and uh, you know, how he was able to navigate uh, through so many different uh, scenarios, politically and otherwise. Uh, the brilliance of the man, he was able to weave in his... Um, theology, his own personal religious faith into his uh, organizing and into politics, for that matter, Um, that he was a human being uh, as much as anything else. And it comes through when you listen to uh, his speeches and you actually read what he had to say. Um, He was a complicated person, um, and it's important that we go back and revisit him. Uh, you go and you read what he had to say closer to the end of his death and his critique of, of capitalism, uh, and you're struck by how um, clear he was about the flaws uh, of our economic system and our need to radically alter it. Um, you see that he sort of start to understand that the world as it existed then 
needed uh, a change, a radical change, and not just in the United States. And that, in fact, when you talk about the liberation of black people, that it's um, inextricably linked to the struggle of folk around the world. Um, and yeah, he was really a Pan-Africanist, even though he didn't really use that word uh, very often. Uh, and just the brilliance of the man uh, is something that you know, I'm always struck by. He wasn't simply a, sort of this colorblind, you know, person who talked about, you know, content of character and, you know, holding the hands of kids and all, you know, kids like singing Kumbaya. I think he had a vision for that, right? But he also understood that it was a struggle to get people to see the importance of, of making the world a better place and people coming together. So for me, you know, Dr. King was an extraordinarily complicated figure, inspiring figure, but there's so much today that we can learn from him, from him if we continue to dig in and understand uh, the complexity of the, the time in which he lived and how much he reflected uh, that complexity. You know, I'll say for me, as I get older, the the speech that he gave right before he died, I've, I've seen the mountaintop and where he's talking about where different places in history he would rather be. Um, or he would think about going if he was having a conversation with God and he was saying, I would rather be right here right now because I feel the change and that's powerful in itself. And yeah, I've crossed that water in the 40. So as I look at he and Malcolm X's life and realize like, on, you all had that insight and maturity of thought super young. Yeah. Yeah, he, and, and he was, and they both, and Dr. King was was fearless. Uh, you asked earlier about as a labor leader, Dr. King would show up at you know the AFL CIO meetings, and he would he would say, "Yes, labor, the House of Labor, you know, you are critically important to the liberation of working people in this country, but." I got to deal with y'all racism, right? You have to deal with y'all exclusion. And he would say it uh, fearlessly. Uh, and boy, what, I mean, the courage of the man is also another thing that I, that I think a lot about. And I also think about like the way he didn't limit the people that he interacted with. Um, you know, he, he was who he was, but he had all kinds of friends, uh, you know, from, you know, the brilliant, you know, Bayard Rustin, um, you know, he was with a gay black man, a man who was openly gay, uh, Bayard Rustin was. That was not acceptable uh, back in the 50s and 60s. Uh, yet he was uh, the person who I think perhaps arguably influenced him the most. Uh, you know, so to me, Dr. King, the brilliance, the courage, um, the foresight, the commitment, all of those things, uh, and his ability to just get along with everybody uh, and be in spaces where he wasn't actually invited to be in. Exactly. Um, it's just, it's a remarkable story that I think more of us could learn from. Well, thank you so much for your time, uh, President Kelly, this morning.
Thank you. Thank you for having me on, finally. Finally. And we look forward to having more of a discussion as we move into the summertime about the importance of jogging and taking care of yourself. Or walking. Or walking. Or walking. (laughs) I'll talk to you later, Greg. Take care. Take care. You too. So we can talk a lot about, a whole lot about the legacy of Dr. King. We can talk about a whole lot of legacy of Malcolm X. But what we shouldn't keep talking about is one speech someone gave. We have to look at the body of work. One, not just that he went to Morehouse at 15, but that he got a Ph.D. from the University of Boston, which is one of the most segregated, one of the most racist cities in America that has over time dealt with their own migrant crisis in Boston, not coming from the southern border, but actually coming from Africa and the port towns. Um, We have to talk about uh, Selma. We got to talk about when he failed. And um, I want to say it was Athens, Georgia, when he failed on that campaign. We got to talk about Operation Breadbasket because all of those things are things we still need. Corporations do hire black people all the time, but it's not black and brown people that are sitting in C-suites in these in these corporations. It's not most of the time black and brown people that are making these decisions in these hospitals where with janitors and transporters and dietitians and CNAs on what they're wage should be. It is not enough black and brown people in uh, the halls of government that are making these decisions. And it's not enough people who have connection and care about the people. If you are going to lead the people, then you got to care about where they come from and have an understanding of where they come from and how are they going to get there. If we continue to have a lack of investment in our wages and a lack of investment in our community, the wild, wild west that everybody thinks Chicago is, Chicago will become. But I don't know about you, but I am definitely against Chicago becoming that. So come with me on this journey, y'all. 2023 is going to be a crazy year, and I look forward to every moment of it. If God says the same, when Sunday comes, I'll see you later, people.